called Walking with the Giants. Uh, we've done a series like this before. Uh, it's where we just pick a giant of the faith and just walk with them, study aspects of their life. Uh, but today, for, for today and for the next several weeks, we're just gonna study one giant, and that giant is King David. So we're gonna study the life of David for a few weeks. And so just a refresher, uh, it's not good to just assume everybody knows who King David is. Probably a lot of you do. Um, but just a refresher, here are some fun facts about King David and who he is. King David, he's called in the Bible the man after God's own heart. I mean, what a thing to be known by and remembered as. The man after God's own heart. He was the second king of Israel after King Saul. Saul was the first. King David was the second. And under King David's leadership, Israel was united. Enemies were conquered in battle. And most importantly, the God of Israel, Yahweh, was glorified and honored. And a fun fact about David, through his lineage would come Jesus, the Messiah and Savior. Another fact, King David was known, obviously, as King David. But he wasn't just a king. He was a songwriter. He was a psalmist. Like we just read, he wrote the majority of the Psalms. And again, he was the man after God's own heart. Yet at the same time, he was extremely flawed. He made a lot of mistakes. And for the next several weeks, we're just gonna study his life. And we're gonna study and see what can we glean and learn from King David. But today, this really the singular point about David that we're gonna zone in on is that King David loved the presence of God. King David loved the presence of God. He loved to worship God. He loved to do what we just did. He loved to just flow and worship and sing, and he'd write another song and another song and another song, and they would just worship God. He loved to be in the presence of God through prayer and worship, and again, writing songs. This is just how David was. And he, and he was an example to all of what true, genuine worship looked like. And my prayer today is that as we see David, we would recognize that we, too, should love the presence of God, that we, too, should long for the presence of God every day in our life, whether we're corporately together or where I'm by myself, no matter where I am, I should long for the presence of God. And in fact, I should see that I'm... I'm desperate, I'm desperate for the presence. I need God's presence to sustain me and he's just worthy of it. So that's my prayer. And so if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter six. 2 Samuel chapter six, it's in the Old Testament. And as you turn there or flip there, um, to set the context, 2 Samuel chapter six King David, after many years of waiting, he's waited now, I think, seven years to be king. Several years he waited to be king. And one of the first things that he wants to do as king is bring back the ark of God into, into the middle of the city, Jerusalem. I have a picture, a painting of the ark. So the ark there. I like the painting because you can kind of see what it would look like as they carried it. So the Ark of God was a wooden box that just symbolized the presence of God. And the Ark, it was, it was known as an intersection between heaven and earth. The Ark of God, this wooden box. And when you know the story, when, when the people of God, when the Israelites took the promised land and the sea parted what led the way, the ark of God. The ark of God led the way. And so what had happened is King Saul had the ark. And when things got comfortable, he just left the ark in the middle of this field. It's kind of what we do, right? When things get comfortable, we just kind of let the presence of God just kind of be left away. This is what happened with Saul. Things got comfortable. Things were peaceful. And the presence of God just got left in a field. And the first order of business for King David is we're going to get the ark. And that's the context of 2 Samuel 
chapter 6. King David was coming to restore what, what Saul had left behind. And so let's read. 2 Samuel 6. Forgive me if I mispronounce some of these names. I tried my best to learn them this week. Verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ayo, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ayo went before the ark. Okay, one thing that you won't catch is when they're transporting the ark of God, what are they carrying it on? A cart. Now, if you know your law, the ark of God was never to be transported on anything, especially a cart. So it was probably heavy. They had a long distance to go, and so convenient. It was convenient. It was easy. Throw it on a cart. Who else transported the ark of God on a cart? The Philistines, the enemies of God. It was disrespect. It was treating what is holy as if it's just casual. Throw it on the cart. And so King David, though he meant well, made a mistake. And they threw the ark of God on a cart. And the disrespect of God's holiness led to somebody dying. Fast forward to verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down because of his error. And he died there. The ark got wobbly. And Uzzah thought he could help by putting his hands on the ark, and he died. You may ask why, another sermon, another day. But just know that there was a disrespect to the holiness of God, and you don't do that. And they learned that the hard way. J.D. Greer says about this passage of scripture, this story alone should tell us how God feels about the attitude that says, I worship God in my own way. It doesn't matter how one worships God or what you do, as long as it's sincere. But you have to hear, God does not take kindly to worship that disregards his standards. God is holy. God is holy. And like Emily and lots of times today, it's not really about, like she said, it's not really about what we want or how we feel. It's about him. He's holy. He has a holy standard. And he's not going to take a half-hearted something and disrespect and casual. He's holy. Now, there's more to that, but this is what we see when people get it wrong. But let's fast forward to verse 12. So David, after a delay, there was a little hiccup, and some months went by. Verse 12. So David, after that delay, went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. City of David, that's Jerusalem. And they did it with rejoicing. In verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord, which it had to be Levitical priests, like you saw in the painting, you're supposed to have Levitical priests transport the ark, not, and not a cart. So finally, they got it right. When those who bore the ark, the Levitical priests, when they had gone six steps, so one, two, three, four, five, six, King David shouts, stop. And it says that, and King David sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. So they took six steps, and David says, we're going to get this right this time. And he, and he made a sacrifice to the Lord, something that was pleasing to God. And you may not notice this either. The priest made the sacrifice, right? That's what it says, right? The priest? No, King David. King David, it's fascinating that God would accept King David not only as king, but as a priest. Saul tried to do that, and it went wrong. Another sermon, another day. When kings do priestly things, it doesn't go well. But for some reason, David's heart was so in touch and in tune with the Lord that not only was King David king, he was welcomed as a priest of God. And King David made the sacrifice that was pleasing 
to the Lord. Now we're seeing King David honor the Lord as he deserves, as holy. And David knew he could boldly enter the presence of God, but he also knew now that he should revere and treat the Lord as holy. And so David makes a sacrifice. The priests go marching. And verse 14, probably a verse you've heard many times. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so you may wonder, what did the dancing of David look like? Grant has volunteered to demonstrate. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a linen ephod. There's so much happening here, and I struggled this week to know which route to go. There's so much to study here and that you can see, but you have David, gotta see it. You have David who loves the presence of God, the brand new king dancing in the street in a linen ephod. If you don't know what that is, it is the undergarments of a priest. So David is basically dancing in his underwear in the street. Not really. But here's the picture you have to see. What David is doing here is he's genuinely modeling humility. He's, he's modeling a humble heart that truly, truly, genuinely loves to worship God. And you may wonder, well, how is he modeling that? There's two things you have to know. The first way that you see this in David is that, again, David was accepted by God as a priest. And David is only wearing the priestly undergarments here in this scene. He's not wearing the robes that a priest would wear. He's not wearing the tassels and all the things that a priest would wear. It's almost as if David is saying, I'm unworthy to wear what those priests wear. I'm the least of all the priests. But what I do have is a heart that just wants to worship, a heart that just wants to be in the presence of God. It's almost as if David is saying, I will worship God even if I look like a fool here in the street. This is all I have. And so humility. But a second way that we see humility in David's worship, again, you may miss this, but the, the setting that we're reading about it's describing David's royal entrance into Jerusalem as the king. So this is basically the coronation day, a royal parade, the triumphal entry. After years of waiting to be king, after years of even the people waiting for David to be king, finally, here's the moment. It's coronation day. It's parade day. Everybody's in the streets. Everybody's celebrating. The musicians are playing. Everybody's pumped and happy. They've been waiting for years for this, and the parade's coming, and all these people march by playing their music, and everybody knew at the end of the parade will enter the king. And where the king would come in, lifted up high for all to see, and everybody is anticipating this new king wearing all of his kingly things and elevated high and everybody can see him. And in this setting, you don't, the Bible doesn't say it, but you can almost assume everybody's jaws hit the floor because of what we just read. The king always enters at the end of the line, dressed in kingly clothes, Yet, yeah, that's not what you see. The one who is supposed to be their king is dancing like a fool in his underwear in the street. And in the place of where he should be, coming last in the parade, carried in for all to see, is the ark of God. And Psalm 24 what we just read was written with that sight and with that context in mind. When King David writes, lift up your heads, O gates, 
be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then he writes the question in verse eight, who is the king of glory? David writes, you may ask, who's the king of glory? You thought it was me. And when King David writes this, it's as if he's saying, oh no, I'm not the king of glory. That's your king. That's your king. The presence of God. Yahweh. That's what he says. Who's the king of glory? David writes, Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty. Yahweh, the Lord, mighty in battle. He's the king, not me. It's such a great picture. Again, David probably waited and dreamed and even saw it in his mind. I'll be entered in and they'll all celebrate my name and I'll be lifted up and I'll be wearing my kings after all this persecution and all this waiting. Finally, I'll be king and I'll get to lead Israel. But instead, David says, I'm just gonna dance in the street. I'm just gonna worship. I'm gonna let the Lord be king. This is David's heart of humility. I read in this book that I have, Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools. You should definitely read it. But Tyler Staten is the author. I don't think I gave this to media, but I'll just read it. He says that it's almost as if David was communicating by doing this. It's almost as if David was saying, I'm not a king who's coming to sit on a throne. I'm a priest coming to lead you into the presence of God. I'm the least of all the priests, unqualified to wear the robes and tassels, and that's your king. This is what David was trying to communicate and 2 Samuel continues to show us that this was David's first act as king to lift high the presence of God. And then what you'll see in the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 6 is David would go into his palace, he'd sit down with all his advisors, and he would lay out a plan. And to summarize the rest of King David's kingly reign, there's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. But when it comes to the presence of God, what David would do is he would hire 288 worship leaders, prophets and elders to pray and to worship into the tabernacle that he would make a house for God, a, a tent of dwelling, David's tabernacle. He would, he would hire 288 musicians and priests and elders all to worship 24 hours a day in this tabernacle. And for the 33 years of David's reign as Israel's king, worship and prayer took place nonstop, 24 hours a day, for 33 years. David put prayer and worship back at the very center of God's people. And what's amazing is he invited all people to come, men, women, slave, free, Israelite, pagan. And again, in this book, Tyler Staten comments, he says, the 33 years of David's kingship were the only time before the resurrection that there were no restrictions on access to God's presence. David's tabernacle was a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. That's what King David did. And so through this walk, through 2 Samuel 6, as we've studied this aspect of David's life, there's no doubt that we are not convinced that David loved the presence of God. You see it? He had a heart of humility that longed to worship. So that's King David. Now what about us? How do we apply this to us? You may say, well, Lennon, we just finished 21 days of prayer. Why are you teaching on prayer again? To what I would say to that is I think now is when we need this teaching more. Because now's the time where we tend to lax up. Well, I did the 21 days. Now's the time where we need to go even harder and really press into prayer and to worship because now is when it really matters. And so I say again, now more than ever do we press into this. And so I have a question. I wonder if you love the presence of God like David. Do you love the presence of God like David? Do you have a heart of humility that longs to worship the Lord? Do you worship God with your life, with your words, with your actions? 
And my heart, my heart that I've prayed all week for this message is, is just like, like King David called the people back to worship, so do I want to call all of us back deeper into, keep going. Oh, I'm calling all of us back to, to worship. And not just on Sundays, but every day. Every day, all of life. Every single day, through reading the Bible, through praising him, through singing, through times of prayer, through gathering with smaller groups of people, by coming to church on Sundays, all of life, every day, in pursuit of the presence of God. That we, like David, can be like that. And, and here's a, a harsh reality. Hear me, I love you so much. I'm preaching to myself. But I've found that we as people, we will busy ourselves with almost anything but prayer. We will busy ourselves with everything but worship. Prayer and worship. We tend to be like Saul. We leave it in the field. And when, thing, when times get hard, then we run back. But then when times get comfortable, we leave it in the field. My prayer today, and I'm preaching to myself, let's stop being like Saul. Let's be like David. Every day, all of life, good times and the bad, stress-free and lots of stress, I'm coming after the presence of God. I'm gonna worship him when I feel like it, and even when I don't, I'm gonna worship him. I'm gonna put aside my preferences, I'm just gonna worship him because he's worthy of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays. Stop being like Saul. Be like David. That's my message. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's my heart. <laughs> but I'm not done. You thought you were off the hook. <laughs> That's really what I believe the Holy Spirit just, now maybe I'll just put some pillows on that couch or whatever. I'll decorate it a little more. But our goal, to be a worshiper every day. And so let's keep adding. When David, when you see him, when he's dancing like a fool in the street, what again, what he's communicating is that he could care less what people thought. He wasn't hanging on to an image, a perception. He was almost in a way, I'd love to ask him one day, he was almost in a way intentionally humiliating himself before all of the people, but doing so in worship of the Lord. In a way, he was saying, the only person that can be large in my life cannot be me. King David was saying, only one person can be large in my life. It'll either be God or it'll be me. And what King David is saying in 2 Samuel 6, he's making it crystal clear who is most valuable to him. And it's not himself. It's the king of glory. And he's saying he alone deserves my worship, even if it means being humiliated before all the people. And so the big question to ask yourself, and I pray Holy Spirit help us to see the answer the big question I want to ask is what does your worship tell others about the value of God to you? What does your worship tell others about the value of God to you? Worship is all of life. It's singing, it's giving, it's serving, it's loving, it's preaching, it's teaching, it's receiving, all of life is worship. And so, with that in mind, what does your worship, your life of worship, tell others about the value of God to you? Let me read this. J.D. Greer, another guy, I love to read. He says, Our entire lives speak volumes to the world about who has the most worth in our eyes. Worship becomes clear in how we spend our free time, where we spend our money, and what we teach our children. Worship comes out in the moments of frustration or anger or in the activities we seek for solace. Worship is seen in our lives 
when we come face to face with sin, injustice, and suffering. So will our responses say, like Saul, that we care more for our image than for God's priorities? Or will we worship God like David, putting ourselves in humiliating positions so long as I make much of him? It keeps going. Understanding worship as whole life, however, he's navigating specifically to singing, does not exempt us from applying that attitude to our singing. When we come together as a body of believers and we sing praise to God, we're putting on display God's greatness and glory in our lives. Our worship, our singing, our corporate gathering worship should put our hunger for God on display. Our physical response should demonstrate admiration, awe, gratitude, and wonder. Now here's what it's not saying, is that now when we start getting together, you start acting crazy solely just to be seen. I want people to see I'm hungry for God, so I'm gonna run laps around the room and do cartwheels. That's not what this is saying. But what it is saying is that your genuine worship of God should manifest physically. Again, I'm not saying you put on a show, but when we lift our hands, when I bow down and surrender, when I'm crying or I'm physically Moved is because deep down in our heart, there is just a hunger for the Lord and the presence of God. And that's what we saw in David. This is what drove David to dance like a fool in the street. And so I love this. Worship is all of life. And so does your life in every context communicate a valuing and a treasuring of God. Do you truly glorify God with your life? And this is the the question I pray that you would answer. I have so much here, but I can't take the place of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one. Though I want to point out every example that may help you see, Holy Spirit, just help. Help us to see where am I getting this wrong? Because I'm right there with you. This is this message is for me. If I'm the only one, then so be it. But I, I have to repent before you. Because I'm a go, go, go kind of guy. I want to I wanna make a difference with my life. I want to take the streets. I want to strategize. I want the whole city to be flipped upside down for Jesus. But how I respond to that is I'll strategize. I'll dig into the word. And that's great. But how often am I pausing and, and getting on my knees and praying and asking the Lord to do what only you can do? And I repent before you. I'm a go, go, go kind of guy. And sometimes that's to my detriment. And so may I be the first to say, Lord, I repent. I'm going I'm to stop, stop misprioritizing my life. Because when I think that the strategy and all of that is the moment I've missed it, that he alone is the one that can transform our city, that can transform your family. It's not me. It's not a book. It's not a strategy. It's not a word of counsel. Only he can do that. Which is why I love what he's done today. What he did today is he said, I know you had plans. Scrap it. Scrap it. <laughs> yeah. Because like Pastor Ron has said to us so many times, what could take six years in counseling, the Lord can do in a moment. So why would we blow past <laughs> and so again I'm the first I go before you and I say Lord I repent no more will I be like Saul I want to be like David I want to prioritize him first man I wish we had like three hours <laughs> But that's it. So will you respond the same? Will you respond the same? Will you, you want to see your family turned upside down for the Lord? Start in prayer and worship. You want to see your workplace turned upside down for the Lord? Start in prayer and worship. You want to see your life count? Start in prayer and worship. You want to see this church catch revival? Start in prayer and worship. You want to see yourself free from that sin? Start in prayer and worship. You want to hear from God? 
hear direction for your life, figure out your purpose, start in prayer and worship. That's it. There's not a book that someone has written that can replace that. Now, this is great. I love books. These were probably all written from prayer and worship. But again, we can't, it's like we prioritize everything but prayer and worship. Don't, don't do that. And again, I'm the first to repent for that. And so here's how we'll close. I'm skipping a lot of stuff, but that's okay. I want to close with this. Psalm 24, we read it. Just kind of want to just dissect it a little bit very quickly. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're here, Psalm 24 is such an awesome way that you can see the gospel. If you are a believer in Jesus, see the gospel in a, in a way maybe you haven't before. Be refreshed by the gospel here. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein and in the earth for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Basically just saying, God created everything. He created everything. There's not a single thing on earth that the Lord doesn't know about. He's the creator. In verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy presence? So he's not only the creator, he's holy. In him is no imperfection, no sin. He cannot allow unholiness into his presence because he's holy, he's perfect, he's set apart. And verse three says, who shall enter his holy presence? Verse four says, well, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. So what you see here is a fourfold requirement to ascend the hill to enter the presence of a holy God. Number one, they must have clean hands. This means right actions must be free from all sinful action. Clean hands and all they do, innocent, free from guilt. That's the first. The second, they must have a pure heart, which means a right attitude in all things. Pure motives, perfect in thought, perfect in emotion. Number three, they must not lift their soul to what is false, not disgrace God or dishonor God or in other people. That's number three, no hypocrisy. Number four, they must not swear deceitfully. No deception or false motive must fill their heart. They must know nothing of dishonesty or deceit. That's the fourfold requirement to enter the presence of a holy God. Now, who wants to admit that they check every single box perfectly all of life, outwardly and inwardly in every way. Anyone? Anybody? None of us. So why do we have hope? What hope is there? We can't ascend the hill. We can't enter a holy God's presence. By admission, we just all admitted we don't meet any of those requirements. So where's the hope? None of us can fulfill the fourfold requirement, except for one, except for one. In fact, Acts 10, 38 says about this one that he has clean hands because Acts 10, 38 says he went about doing only doing good. There's only one whose heart is so pure and dedicated to God that it says in John 8, 29, that I always do what pleases the Father. There's only one so devoted to the glory of God that he and he alone can say in John 17, 4, I have glorified you, Father, on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And there's only one whose words were so full of truth and integrity that the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 22, that he and he alone did not commit sin and there was no such deceit found in his mouth. There's only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and remain standing forever in the presence of a holy God. And that one is Jesus. But we still don't answer the question, how does that give me hope? That's cool about Jesus, but what about me? Because I'm still over here 
missing every box. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, by his perfect work of paying the price on, of our sin, the Bible says that now we can come and be found in Jesus. I'm hidden in Christ. There's no more condemnations for those who are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The Bible says you won't be able to not see it now in the, Old, in the New Testament. In Christ, in Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. If I'm in Christ, now I can be found clothed in a righteousness not my own, but I'm clothed in Jesus because I'm in him. I'm in Christ. The, the Bible uses the, or a big word, imputed. Jesus imputed by identification with Jesus. Now I belong to Jesus. By faith, I identify with Jesus. Now when the Father looks at us, he looks at us and he sees us clothed in Jesus who meets the fourfold requirement. And now when I enter the presence of God, if I'm clothed in Jesus, guess what? I can stand. I can be accepted. I can be welcomed. And when, when the Father looks at me, he sees me clothed in Jesus, and he sees my sin done away with on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This is what should drive us to dance like fools before the Lord, to worship, to not, to not care, to be so moved every single day of our life because I know that I'm clothed in Jesus because of the sacrifice that he made for me. Who can ascend the hill? Who can enter his holy presence? I don't know why, but I can. Because I am clothed in Jesus. And it's the greatest news ever. And if you don't know it, you don't believe it, man, I don't know how you can. Come today. And if you find yourself, you're a believer and you're just running on fumes. You just have been so robotic in your church attendance for weeks, for months, for years, I don't even know. I just, when I'm praying this week, I just saw like jumper cables, or whatever they're called, the bring your heart back, the defibrillators, that's what they're called. Just a spiritual, poof. I just pray that, man, your heart of affection for Jesus would be, bah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I have four kids, and I know they're probably getting antsy. This is the last thing I'll say. Whether you know the Lord or you don't, whether you've known the Lord for years or you don't know him at all, the question is, will you step aside and let the king of glory be king of your heart? Will you step aside and let the king of glory be king of your heart? Give him all of your life for all of your life every aspect of my life, all of my life, for all of my life, forever and ever until the end. And here's the picture I want you to see. If there's a parade celebrating the king of your heart, if we could somehow see that, the true answer of your heart, if we all could just one by one put it up on the projector and see this parade, and what we're doing is we're celebrating the king of your heart. Would the king entering in be you? Or would it be the king of glory? And there you are. There's the king of glory entering in, and there you are dancing like a fool in the street. Because I know that throne does not belong to me. And it's, and it's a daily battle. Like Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily and follow me. Basically, as if to say every single day, get off that throne. Let the king of glory occupy that throne because it's when he sits there that you actually have peace and love and acceptance and belonging where you find true life, what you're searching for, and all these things will only be found in the king of glory sitting on the throne of your heart. And that's the only one that is worthy of it, that deserves it. And so will you step aside and let the king of glory take his throne on your heart every day for all of life, for all of life until the end.
And then we'll spend eternity worshiping in that same reality where the king sits on his throne. And there we are forever and ever and eternity surrounded by that king. And that king is Jesus. That king is Jesus. And man, he's here. And so what I want to do, I want to invite the worship team back. Just want to don't stand yet. Bow your heads with me. We're just shaking up routine today. Don't stand. Bow your heads. I want to pray for you. If there's anybody here in the room that is away from the Lord, that does not know Jesus, maybe you've been faking it your whole life, and man, wouldn't you just feel it even now, this wrestling, this tension. They've known me as this solid believer. Man, they've known me. I've even led stuff. And yet, for some reason right now, you just feel this thing in your heart. The Lord is just working. It's almost as if he is driving you to a place of humiliation. And, and he's, he's challenging your perception, your image before others. He's challenging that pride. <laughs> Yet you know, by opening up to him, by confessing to other believers, by inviting people in, by just acknowledging, man, I've been faking it, I've been going through the motions, and I repent. If you identify with anything I'm saying, man, I want to pray for you. Maybe you just, you know, you've never professed a belief in Jesus, but today you're just, you're seeing this call to follow Jesus. I want to pray for you too. So Lord, I pray for anyone that's away from you. I pray for anybody that doesn't know you, God, that they would see this invitation to come to Jesus, to follow Jesus, that he's worthy, that he alone can give us peace. He alone can stand before a holy God. And, and he alone can we come and be clothed in a righteousness, not our own. We can't do it. Our works are not enough. Our performing to be a good person is not enough. Only and only in Jesus where we bow at the foot of the cross and surrendering all of my life to him. It's only there that I now can come boldly to the throne of grace. And so for anybody in the room, Holy Spirit, I'm asking, will you draw people? Will you see that the kindness that you have can lead them to a place of repentance, a, a changing of their mind, a turning away to you, Lord? I just pray, God, that you would just do what only you do. If anybody in here doesn't know Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you lead them even after? Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody so we can walk together. And God, I pray for this church. God, I pray that today doesn't just fade by too quickly. That, Lord, you did something today. And, and, and God, it's things that we don't even know. We might not even have language to it. But I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in this church? We really do want to make a difference for your kingdom. We really do want our homes to glorify you, our marriages, our workplaces, our schools, no matter where we go, we really do want to make a difference. But God, let us be rooted in worship and prayer. Let us learn from King David and love your presence. That's what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, come on, can we stand to our feet and can we just lift a shout of praise to Jesus? Come on, let's lift a shout of praise to him. Amen. Man, if you need to hang around and you need to just maybe receive prayer, we'll have a prayer team up here. Maybe you just need to keep worshiping. You don't want to let this moment pass too by. Keep the kids in mind. If you have kids, don't just leave them back there. Uh, but man, don't, don't feel too rushed to go. I do want to share a few things. This is just informational announcements that we maybe didn't get to say. If you're new here, 
and, and you want to, you know, let us know who you are. You want to keep moving forward in the seat underneath in front of you, however you say that. Underneath the seat in front of you, there's a card and the seat backs, there's a QR code. Let us know you are here. Let us know your name. We want to follow up with you. We want to help you take next steps. Um, what else is there? Oh, yes, the, uh, there's cards also. If you, man, you responded to Jesus today and you made Jesus Lord of your life today or you're wanting to just recommit to Jesus, there's a card that says, I have decided. Fill that out. And I personally will follow up with you. I will reach out to you and we will get together or something. We'll make it happen. But I want to walk with you. I want to help you keep taking your next steps. Marriage conference is coming up. We're gonna email it all to you. Marriage conference is coming up in March. We wanted to announce it because we really want our Christian life couples to be able to register. We are gonna publicize it to everybody, but we really want you to be able to register and know about it. So March 8th and 9th, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be really cool. And we'll email all of this to you, Emily said. So love you guys. Praise God is all we can say. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah. We have a prayer team here. We love you, and we'll see you back next Sunday.